I love my country very much. I'm a proud American. I cannot stand the divisions that we have in this country presently. You know, before I became a photographer, I went to school initially to become a history professor. And I initially wanted to go in and specialize during or around the Civil War era, what led up to the Civil War and Reconstruction that followed afterwards. And I studied this time period in our history intensely. And I still do. I mean, I'm reading three books on it right now. It lays the groundwork. All the lessons are right there of who we are as a people, what we've become since then, where we failed, where we didn't do the job right, which is why we're still in the mess that we are now. So once again, I feel a moral obligation as a photographer to critique my own country. And the way that I critique my own country is to going into the lion's den. I'm a progressive. I believe in social justice and uh, equal rights for all mankind, all humankind, regardless of border, politics. And I know that a lot of the people in the rural parts of this country have been hoodwinked when it comes to politics. But I wanted to go make a book that was apolitical. And the way that I could do that is like I did with Cuba, is I go and photograph people as they are, where they are, without the sign of politics. I want to see them as Americans because I, I want to go and experience this part of my own country. I want to see what's there. I, did, I don't know what's in there. And I don't think a lot of people know what's in the central United States. I mean, it's called flyover country. Welcome to the Photo Podcast. This is Michael Howard, founder and CEO of Photo. And this is the final episode with documentary photographer Richard Sherum. You know, I, I was doing a, an interview. This is how I got the idea. So I just got done with Cuba. I was in Paris doing a book signing at uh, Paris Photo. I was doing an interview after the book signing with a um, magazine out there and uh, the German journalist that was there asking me what I'm going to do now, now that Cuba's done and what's my next work. I wasn't sure about homicide yet, so I didn't even mention that. But I said, I want to do something similar to Campesino, but with my own country, where I kind of discover my own country as an American, because I, I really think that's needed right now. In our country, there's a lot of division. And it hasn't been this divided since uh, the 1850s, to be honest with you, right before the Civil War where the media becomes completely separated. This, these people listen to this media, these people listen to this media bubble. And that, that's precisely what we saw in the decade leading up to the Civil War. And so when I told him that, and he's like, oh, he kind of laughed. And he was like, well, don't go to a flyover country. And he said that with a really emphasized you know, thing uh, in broken English, because I heard it's really boring there, what he told me. I just kind of laughed about it. And then I thought about that later on. I thought, you know what, he's absolutely right. What is this flyover country that I've heard about my whole life? I grew up in Texas, you know, and uh, for some reason, Texas is not included in that. It's just mostly Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, and the Dakotas. Well, why is it called flyover country? That means that most of the nation considers this place to be unimportant politically, socially, and culturally. And we've seen the repercussions of writing this entire population off politically. Because now they've gone all the way to the other side, and there's no moderation at all. And what really fortified my idea to do this was when I stood in my living room and watched thousands of my countrymen and women storm the Capitol on January 6th. And I thought, you know, being a, a student of history, I knew that something like that hadn't happened since 1812 when the British did it. 
And when that very famous photograph now of the man running through the Capitol holding the Confederate flag, knowing that the real Confederacy never got to that point, they were never able to penetrate the Capitol, that pissed me off. And I thought, okay, I need to do something for my own country. And so that's when I decided to look at this area called Flyover Country, and I created a 100-mile-wide corridor or a spine that goes right up the middle from the U.S.-Mexico border to the U.S.-Canadian border. And that's why it's called Spina Americana, which is Latin for American Spine. And I've been traveling up this 100-mile-wide corridor for the last almost three years now, and I'm almost done. And I never really pre-plan images or anything like that. I, I just kind of like let time happen as it happens in front of me. Uh, I put myself in situations preemptively knowing that I might get something like the reservation that I'm supposed to go to uh, later on next month. But there's one image that I want to end it with, not necessarily end it with physically in the book, but I want to be the last image I take of the project. And I'll tell you and your listeners what that is going to be right now. Hopefully it works out. On April 8th, 2024, there's going to be a total solar eclipse over the central United States. And so I want to situate myself somewhere rurally where there's lots of hills probably in the hill country in Texas, and uh, photograph people observing this all coming together under this unique natural event as sort of like a culmination of all this work that I've done over the last three years. Because the idea of this work is that as Americans, we all need to come together. In that moment when that sun crosses over, I mean, the moon crosses over and blocks the sun, all those differences are erased. You understand? All those people observing that total eclipse within that path are all one and the same. They're all experiencing that event that only lasts for four minutes. They're all experiencing this thing together, looking up at the sky. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing to have something that brings everybody together like that. And so I'm trying to create a book that hopefully people look at and they say, okay, that looks like my uncle. That looks like my wife. That looks like my children. It's somebody in New York saying that or somebody in Oregon saying that. You know, and understanding that we are all Americans and that we need to come together before we fall apart. Uh, the Spina Americana Project, I'm curious, people that you've met there and photographed there, what have they taught you? They've, they've only reinforced what I believe, that if you go with an open heart and you don't prejudge anybody when you go to meet them, that there's power in that vulnerability and that there's power in allowing yourself to be open to those things and to those types of people that they will accept you and treat you kindly and treat you like a countryman. I mean, I've been to places where they don't normally allow people, you know, I've photographed in prisons for this project. I went and photographed at a Mennonite colony for almost two weeks in Kansas. They allowed me to photograph them worshiping, praying, eating, living, and they treated me like I was family. You know, this military funeral that I just photographed, this, the reason why I, I photographed it and I got to meet this gentleman um, was, was very interesting because the last two and a half years I've been looking for a veteran from either the Korean or, the, or World War II era that was still alive, that still had their uniform, and was willing to sit for a portrait with it, wearing it. So everywhere I've traveled in the mid-century United States, I've looked for this individual and was not able to find him. So I'd go to retirement homes. I'd go to veteran centers. I went to the states. Hey, they're veterans organizations. Like, do you know anybody in this area that I'm photographing in that fits this criteria? And either they've all died because they're all dying 
or if they are still alive, they don't have their uniform anymore because they lost it a long time ago or got eaten up by, you know, moths in the closet or years ago and they got thrown away or, or burned in a house fire. Who knows? I could never find anybody. And then I happened to be uh, at a reservation photographing in June in South Dakota and uh, asked a couple of veterans that I met. They didn't know anybody, but they mentioned it to this lady. And she's like, my father served in Korea. They're like, oh, you should go talk to him. So she comes over and talks to me. And I said, this is what I'm looking for. And she's like, I have no idea if he still has his uniform. Like he's 97 years old. He saw combat. That was the other thing. I wanted a combat veteran, not somebody who served stateside, because I knew those guys were leaving really quickly. So she's like, well, let me get home and we'll look for his uniform and I'll call you. Well, I didn't hear anything from her for a couple of days. And then she called me and said, we found his uniform. It's in immaculate condition and he's willing to wear it for you if you want to come tomorrow. So I met him. Great guy. Photographed him. Had two purple hearts. You know, got shot in combat in Korea. And then not even three weeks later, he dies. And so they invited me to come back out and shoot the funeral. And I thought, what a great way to couple that. You know, the image of him, the portrait that I took of him in his uniform with him being buried. To kind of drive home this fact that these individuals are leaving us. And they're an important part of our history. And he lives in this part of the country that most people would rather fly over. You know what I mean? That was a real honor and a real treat that I got to meet him and his family. They treated me like family. They fed me, gave me a place to stay. This is only after meeting them that one time and photographing uh, this gentleman. So it's reinforced these ideas that I have that no matter where you go, it's how you immerse yourself. You don't have to have a camera. Uh, you know, when I went to Cuba, I had no idea what to expect. Not that they would treat me, you know, like get away from me kind of situation because I was an American and because I had a camera and I was going to parts of Cuba that well, most people don't go. I wasn't going in Havana and photographing like every other photography book that you see coming out of Cuba. I got as far away from Havana as possible. I was deep in the mountains. And so I didn't know how they would treat me. And yet village after village after village after village treated me with kindness, respect, hospitality, honesty, fed me, put me up wherever I wanted to stay, treated me like I was family. I can't overemphasize what that feels like. To have that same experience in my own country only reinforces my idea and, and proves to me that if an individual chooses to immerse themselves in their surroundings, in the, in the surrounding environment, that environment will accept him or her. You know, it's all about how you put yourself out into the world and whether you choose to live with that energy or shun it because it's easier. It's much easier just to avoid all that, you know, and to separate yourself and say, oh, well, those people don't look like me. I'm not going to go over there. <laughs> those people don't sound like me. I'm not going to, I'm not going to go talk to them. You know, I don't have anything in common with those people. It's very easy to do that. Right. And most people do do that. And those are the same type of people that criticize people like me for going and photographing people because they, they've never lived that life. They don't understand what that feels like. They just assume that, that it's wrong. You know, we're never going to be able to solve the problems in this country or with this species, with global warming and all that, unless we really, really immerse ourselves. It's very easy for us to turn the channel when we see, you know, people being flooded out or wildfire like in Maui. 
it's very easy for people to just say, oh, well, it's another natural disaster. What's happening today? You know, that kind of thing. But it affects you. You just don't know it yet. I'm assuming you can confirm this or not. Just one of the hopes of people that look at your work and follow you and see what you're doing is that we'll hopefully maybe rearrange the priorities that they have in their life to a degree. I feel like, at least in America, with the capitalistic society we have, we tend to prioritize the wrong things a lot, kind of leading with more grace and empathy and less judgment and condemnation. Yeah, I mean, I could have easily, for Spina, I could have easily uh, photographed uh, the bazillion fuck Biden flags that I've seen. What would people have done when they saw that? They were like, oh, this is just a political book. This is some bullshit by some liberal photographer. Or on the other side, you'd have a somebody who's progressive or a liberal looking at the book saying, oh, fuck these people for having a fuck Biden. In fact, fuck these people. You know what I mean? It only reinforces those divisions if I did that. So I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do something apolitical. I wanted to photograph these people. The only flag that you see in Spina Americana is an American flag. And you see people posing with it. You see people standing next to it, people who have it in their front yard, you know, that kind of thing. I'm not giving them the flag to stand next to. The flag was already there. They already had it. I'm not trying to reinforce divisions. I'm trying to break all those things down. I'm trying to break down those barriers and reinforce or at least advocate for this livelihood of immersion. That's what needs to happen. I don't care if it's with homicide. I don't care if it's with cancer. I don't care if it's with homeless children. I don't care if it's with Central United States. It's immersion. You have to immerse yourself as an individual. The moment you shut yourself off, then you're contributing to this destruction. How much time do you have left on these American homicide, Spina Americana? And like, when do you kind of anticipate maybe books would be released on these? I'm hoping Spina will be done pretty much by the end of this year, but I'm reserving that last photograph for April 8th, remember next year. Time Magazine said they want to do a, a piece on it, so hopefully that comes to fruition. They, they're waiting till the election year because they think that it's relevant towards the election. The documentary film is supposed to be coming out in 2024, so I'm hoping to put out Spina Americana as a book. I want to have the book done, designed, and everything over the winter so that when I take that last photograph, I know exactly where that's going in the book. And... Uh, and then I can put the book out, hopefully by next fall, 2024, Spina, that is. Uh, and because I don't want to necessarily drop two lead weights at the same time, I'm thinking about finishing Homicide over the next year as far as going to more prisons, photographing some of these prisoners in prison, which is why I'm going there, and meeting their families, and uh, collecting more and more interviews and information. Uh, I don't know when Homicide's going to come out, but I'm hoping that it comes out I don't know. I mean, it'd be great if I could put it out next year, 2024 also, but I also don't want to just put them right out, right out, right next to one another. And as far as the publisher is concerned, I mean, I'll just be honest. Like, you know, I put out Composina with Goss Books. I love them. Stu Smith is a great designer. I just don't know if I'm putting out Spina with them or if I'm putting out Homicide with them. Yeah, I'm kind of researching all that right now as to whether or not I should release two very American books uh, out of Europe. So that's what I'm kind of looking at right now, that if I can't find an American publisher that is A, either willing or I think is a good enough vehicle to put those books out, I'll put it that way. There's just not a lot of publishers in the United States left anyway. And the ones that are there are all putting out fine art conceptualism. So I seriously doubt they're going to want to put out a book of dead people. Let's just be honest. So I may have to end up self-publishing like Eugene Richards did this year, that he, this new book that he's coming out with, which I highly uh, recommend, called In This Brief Life. But he had to self-publish it. 
He was turned down by three publishers in America for that work. And that's gorgeous work. I mean, you talk about real photography. You know, if Eugene Richards can't find a publisher, who the hell am I? Uh, you know what I mean? So I may, I may just end up having to self-publish one or both of those books, which I'm not afraid to do. But I would much rather put it out with a under a house that I trust. So we'll we'll see how that turns out. Uh, I'll jump off that bridge when I get to it, but I'm I'm not too worried at this point. I guess the last question is just what's next after that. Goss and I were talking about for a little bit talk uh, putting out like a small two volume series of work that I did in Dallas when I was home from Cuba. Like I would go out to Cuba for an extended period of time and then I'd come home for a certain amount of time and then I'd go back out to Cuba for an extended period of time. And that's when I was working on Compasino Cuba. When I was home during those kind of breaks, I couldn't just sit on my ass. And that's when I shot those two projects. I shot uh, the homeless children one. And then the other one that I shot at that time was a small community. It's in Dallas County. It's called Sand Branch. They've never had running water sewage or trash services. They were started by ex-slaves in the 1880s. And there's 60 people that still live there, including six children. And if you look at images from that on my website called The Curious Case of Sand Branch, you'll see that, I mean, it looks like a third world country. And this is in Dallas County. It's only 13 miles, 14 miles from downtown Dallas, which is one of the most wealthiest cities in the United States. Uh, And they don't have running water. I'm thinking about putting just a quick, small two-volume series, one of Sand Branch and one of the homeless children project and just calling it something like, you know, home in between. Cause I was in between all my trips for Cuba. Basically. I may put that out in amongst Spina and homicide somewhere. And then I had an idea of going and photographing the five remaining properties from our imperialistic days as a country that we still own, uh, that our flag still flies and they still use our currency, but they don't have the same constitutional rights that you and I have. And they don't have voting power like you and I have. Yet, every single one of these five territories contribute a vast majority of their male population to our military. So they're out there fighting our wars, and yet they don't have representation in our Congress. U.S. Virgin Islands, Mariana Islands, Guam, Puerto Rico. I can't think of the fifth one right now. It's off the top of my head. Anyways. But yeah, so those types of territories where we have military bases, but they don't have voting power, you know, these territories that we own, like Puerto Rico, I mean, shit, it's right there. And we still own them and won't give them any sort of status other than the fact that we own them because they get hurricanes and we don't want to pay for it. Let's be honest. So anyways, I was thinking about doing that called Shadow Empire. At least that's what I'm tentatively calling it. But honestly, after Spina and after Homicide is done, I may just take a break. Uh, I mean, I'm, I've been traveling nonstop for all these years, and I kind of want to just not do that. And also, I'm just kind of really being kind of dissuaded and disenchanted with the whole industry, to be honest with you, where where a lot of these publishers are favoring, like I said, people concentrated more on self than others. Uh, you know, the fact that Eugene Richards can't get a publisher for his work is is an abomination, but someone can get a publisher in the U.S. for photographing their feet or photographing a lamp, you know, and those prints sell for 10 grand. You know, it's just absolutely insane uh, where the industry's gone. And so I just, I'm just kind of feeling disenchanted by it all. And I don't, I don't know that it's in the end worth it. 
I don't know, maybe I'm just fatalistic right now because you caught me in that kind of mood, but I have always have hope, but you know, we'll see what happens. It's hard. I mean, I think the documentary, just, you know, my two cents, A, I think what you're doing is incredibly important and valuable. And I hope you keep doing it because we need people like you doing that type of work. I think it's critical. And, you know, we live in a society that doesn't incentivize harder things. Like everything is about escapism and taking the easy path and avoiding conflict and avoiding just a lot of stuff. It's like numbing out essentially. Like most people are just numbing themselves to death through food or activities or entertainment or whatever. So we need people like you that snap us back into reality because everything's just Mm -hmm. pushing towards virtual and that's, you know, it's too much. Well, that's why I'm, I'm hoping I'm rooting for you. I'm rooting for you and I'm rooting for the app. And, uh, I hope that it kind of contributes to getting back to, I think, where we need to be. Because, you know, the general public, their attitude towards photography is going to be shift, sh- shaped and molded by curators and by social media. You know, other, these new photographers coming out, that's what worries me the most. They see photographers getting published, you know, photographing a, an empty shopping cart in a forest. You know, dumb shit like that. And, and they, they understand that, oh, well, this is how I'm going to become popular. This is how I'm going to become likable on social media. This is how I'm going to get my work published. You know, and so they start to move towards that. They become inspired by that, even though it's all flash in the pan type work. You know, it's funny. I, I was at a, I just want to tell you a really quick story. Yeah. I was, uh, I forgot where it was. I was at some photo festival doing a book signing or something. And they had, they had brought out some of the images that this festival had acquired. Okay. Over the years. And one of the images that they acquired was this photographer who I had never heard of. I mean, never made a dent really in the photography world, but at the time he was avant-garde and seen as like groundbreaking because what he was doing is right when Photoshop came out, he was like one of the first photographers that started like making these digital collages, right? So it's like a pencil with a sun and like a tree that's badly Photoshopped, you know, like it's terrible. Mm. It looks absolutely elementary and terrible, but because this was groundbreaking at the time and it was like avant-garde and it was, it was in, you know, because it was this new digital realm, you know, that we're playing in, you know, that, that kind of thing. He was seen as like this thing. And it had on the thing or whatever that the work was acquired for $5,000 a print limited edition, uh, or the edition was one of, I think like eight or something like that. And so, and this was a trash (laughs) photograph. It was like one of the worst like digital collage things you can imagine. You know what I'm saying? Like it was just terrible technology at the time or whatever. And I understand that they, bought that thinking, oh, well, this is going to be really valuable one day, but it's not really, it, it doesn't have that timeless quality to it. But yet I can look at an image that was photographed in the 1950s by Henry Cartier-Bresson or that he shot, you know, when the coronation of, I think it was King Edward or, or uh, yeah, I think it was King Edward's coronation where he photographed the famous photograph of the guy sleeping on the ground with all the people, the crowd watching the coronation. And the guy is covered in newspapers from all the new newspapers that are flying around at the time. And that's a like that's a gorgeous photograph. And it's a historical moment, too, because the king is being uh, crowned. And he was able to capture all of that in one image. And that image has always stood the test of time. And that type of work 
is timeless because, like I said, going back to what I said in the beginning of the conversation, it ties into this universal humanity that translates across all languages, all borders, all socioeconomic status for all time. It makes sense. And you can relate to that type of work. And that image that I mentioned that was hotty toddy at the time, you know, that was purely focused on self and trying to be ahead of the curve digitally is not timeless. And I've never heard of that guy. And I know a lot about photographers who don't just shoot documentary work because I've studied it, but it was just, it was hot garbage on paper. And that guy's not going to go down in the history of photography, but I guarantee you Cartier-Bresson will and Larry Tao will, you know, and those types of individuals. You know, I only say that just because I'm, I'm just worried. I'm worried that these young photographers are coming up and that's what they see. They see this type of this self-obsession, all their emotions, all their feelings, all my pain, me, 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 and not thinking about the greater world around them. I think that's dangerous as a society. I, I hear it from a lot of people. They, 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 they admit to me that they also kind of feel the same way that photography has just kind of gotten off the rails where it's where it's at now <clears throat> like what is what's being incentivized and what's being rewarded the type of kind of banality the type of banal work that's at the forefront right now you know i was kind of telling them i was like you know what i'm completely satisfied with my work not being appreciated until i die like i'm totally okay with that if my work has an impact more so when i'm gone so be it you know i'm not here to autograph body parts i'm not here to be famous you know, I'm, I'm here to put out good work and contribute. That's what I want to be known for, uh, a contributor. And I want to also, you know, my highest goal or whatever uh, aspiration is to be considered a good photographer by other photographers. You know, I want other photographers to be like, okay, that that guy, he's he's a photographer. Like, I, I would die happy with that being on my tombstone, as a, just being known as a photographer. That's a way of life, and it's a calling. I'm just trying to do justice to that and do justice to the people that invite me into their lives to be documented. So I hope that that all comes to fruition. And I know that I may never see the fruit of that labor, but so be it. And so shall it be. Well, thank you for all that you do. Like this has been a, a true honor for me and I appreciate what you're doing out there. Mm, the honor's all mine, Mike. Thanks, man. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening to this conversation with Richard Sherum. If you'd like to support his work, you can uh, visit his website at richardsherum.com. Follow him on Instagram. This will be in the show notes. And you can look for his books, uh, American Homicide and Spina Americana, when they release, hopefully, hopefully next year or the year after. And if you enjoy this podcast, ask that you tell a friend you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, you can also support us by subscribing to our Substack at photoapp.substack.com. And uh, if you want to go all the way, you can become a paid subscriber of our Substack. And that helps us build the app that we're building for photographers. And it helps support the production of this podcast. As always, thank you so much for listening. Until next time.